that today. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Aren't you glad you're free indeed? And God makes a difference in our lives, doesn't he? And that's why we're here today, and that's why we do everything we do as a church family in spreading the love and power of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And one way that we do that is right here locally through the ministries that we have and the ministry staff that leads those ministries. And I want you to hear this morning from uh, Zach Fleming, who is our candidate for our next uh, student minister, going to be a part-time student minister. Zach, come on down. Come on up. Zach's going to share a little bit about himself, his testimony with you, so you can begin praying for him and Haley as they prepare to come here as our student minister. Zach? Forgive me if my voice is a little dry. That song, uh, it's amazing how the Lord gives you what you need, and he knows what you need when you need it. <laughs> uh, this morning, I was nervous coming up here, you know, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of, of, you know, worrying about what other people think. And the Lord said, no, no one matters what I think. So forgive me while I use the last little bit of water in my body. <laughs> Suck it up through my eyes and hopefully... Allow me to finish this. Um, for those of you who do know me, uh, who know me well, which right now is not too many of you, but those of you who do, uh, you know I have a tendency to be long-winded, um, which is probably why youth ministry is better suited for me than uh, preaching up here. Um, yeah, football season would be rough. We'd be missing a lot of games. But um, all of that to say, um, I have some notes uh, that I typed up just uh, as an effort to keep me on track. So um, my name is Zach Fleming. Many of you know uh, that by now. I have a beautiful family, a beautiful wife of almost, uh, almost four years now. Goodness, I wanted to say three, but almost four years. Uh, and uh, two beautiful twin boys that will be three in October, a week after our third child is born. So uh, we have a lot going on, but the Lord has been so, so good to us. Um, a little bit about who I was, who I am. Uh, I grew up in Louisiana all of my 25 years of life, but two have been spent in Louisiana. I've lived uh, in South Louisiana, Central Louisiana, and North, so I know all of Louisiana. I've never lived in New Orleans, so maybe that's the only part I don't know too well. Um, I grew up in a family of six, grew up with three sisters, no brothers. I'm incredibly close with my mom. She uh, was our spiritual leader. Um, as I grew up, my dad was not a believer, and so she was who I looked for. Now, she poured her life into all four of us. Um, and continues to to this day, along with my stepdad now, who does the same. Um, so I had a grandfather who uh, was a preacher. Um, he and my mom are my two heroes, and he poured into me. I have an uncle who is still a preacher, and he has poured into me. And so it was pretty inescapable. Uh, I was in church anytime the doors were open from the time I, before I was born. Um, I grew up... Um, knowing about the Lord. I grew up knowing about Scripture. I knew up, grew up uh, knowing about church and, and the workings of it and how it all went. And I remember at seven uh, years old, I walked up to my mom in our uh, little house, our little living room in West Monroe, and I just said, Mom, I want Jesus in my heart, right, with a seven-year-old uh, seven understanding. And she looked at me and tearfully led me through a prayer, very simple prayer of, of admitting my sin, um, asking the Lord for forgive, uh, to forgive me, uh, recognizing uh, his death and resurrection on the cross and what that meant for me, uh, and then surrendering my life uh, to Christ. I'll tell you what, um, there wasn't any major transformation uh, as a seven-year-old. I didn't uh, look too different the next day, um, but I did take 
uh, I did find confidence in my salvation with the Lord. Uh, now, fast forward three years in 2004 when I was 10, uh, my dad's job moved us up to Missouri for two years. That was a very different experience. I was surrounded by a culture that was very different than um, the predominantly Southern Baptist tr tr uh, culture I grew up in. Uh, people believed very differently than me, spoke very different, differently than me, um, and that was very evident. And that also was at a pretty pivotal point in my life. I was 10 years old um, on the onset of just already that, uh, you know, that end of uh, getting close to the end of elementary, getting close to the beginning of middle school. That was a tough time of life, all right? And that's kind of when it starts. You start to really care about how other people think about you. And so that really hit me hard. At, it was those, during those two years that um, I, I began to develop a dependence upon the approval of others. It really mattered to me what people thought of me. And that set me up for 2006 when we moved down to New Iberia, going into seventh grade. Um, going to, uh, to seventh grade, my mind, uh, more so than on Christ, was on what other people thought of me. I was the new kid, so I got attention just because I was a new kid at a church where there weren't many new kids. Um, and that really had an effect on me. It, uh, it pulled my heart and my eyes off of who the Lord says I am and put it and projected it on what other people said I am. And that really I was, and that really mattered to me. I began to find myself in constant relationships. Um, that was one, probably the main way that my dependence upon others uh, was fleshed out. I was constantly uh, dating somebody, as much as a seventh and eighth grader, you know, as, as deep as that relationship goes. But, uh, but it was uh, pretty damaging to me spiritually. Um, and I kind of masked all of that with this uh, Christian kid uh, mask. I was, I was living this way, living uh, so dependent upon other people, very sinfully, um, while opening the doors for people, yes sir, yes ma'am, um, attempting to be a leader in my youth group, going out and doing Bible studies, and uh, trying to be a good Christian kid. And in that way, I was living some sort of double life. And of course, my attention, you know, when I was worrying about my, myself spiritually, my, my mind would immediately be brought to all those good works that I had done. And I convinced myself, I'm okay, I'm doing, I'm, I'm, look, the teachers like me, students like me, I don't get in trouble with my parents too often, I'm doing all right. And that, that was the, my, my MO throughout middle school and into the beginning of high school. The beginning, um, but all of that balancing of this double life led to fatigue spiritually. I was exhausted from constantly trying to earn that salvation because when I would find myself feeling guilty or shameful, I would, again, go and do something good and put that mask over it, put that band-aid over that bullet wound and say, I'm okay, I'm okay. And those feelings of shame and guilt snowballed and snowballed until I couldn't escape them. And then I began to doubt God and I began to doubt my own salvation. And it was tough, but I had to save face and I had to make other people think Oh, that's a solid kid. That's a solid follow of Christ. Oh, that's an example of a, Christian, of a Christian young man right there. That's Zach Fleming. But I knew what was inside. And it, it, I battled that for a while. And in ninth grade, um, the summer before my sophomore year, I was in a relationship with a girl I thought I was going to marry. Um, but I knew that certain aspects about our relationship, and she was, a, she was a Christian girl. She was great. She was sweet. But aspects of our relationship were not glorifying to him. I wasn't leading how I should be, and in fact, I was allowing 
um, my desire for her to overcome my desire for the Lord. And in, in the summer of 2000, uh, 2000 oh goodness, nine, um, I remember sensing very clearly the Lord was calling me to break up with her. And this is the only time this has ever happened in my life that I, in prayer time, with my voice out loud said, Lord, no, I will not break up with her. If you want, her, if you want us to break up, she has to break up with me. And that, that was a pivotal moment for me because I, I feel like that was the uh, epitome of, of basically what my life had said. But now I'm just, I admitted it outwardly finally. No, I'm saying no. I'm putting my foot down. I haven't done that again, by the way. <laughs> uh, he was very clear. One week later, I get a phone call. She was uh, out of town. Get a phone call from my girlfriend. She was crying and sobbing. And through a long conversation, we broke up. The Lord had put it on her heart. She didn't say no. I was the one that said no. The Lord had put it on her heart, and she broke up with me. I hung up the phone in tears. But it was at that moment, I, I remember clicking in. I was sitting in a bedroom. I was actually, um, I was actually in town. I was living in Iberia, but it was in town. Um, but I was sitting in a bedroom at one of my, my buddy's grandparents' house. We were helping her do some yard work. And it was just me. The lights were off. And I just sat in awe of who the Lord was. He had made himself clear. He had made himself known. He said, okay, I accepted your challenge. And guess what? <laughs> you can't thwart my will. And it was at that moment, it was like a spotlight had shined uh, on my past. And the Lord had said, okay, now do you see it? Do you see it? And I, very clear, clear as day, I understood that I'd seen the double life that I'd been living. And ultimately, that led to me understanding, Lord, it is your grace. Your grace is sufficient. I can't earn it. Who did I think I was to be able to earn salvation? Something I had been told in my life, and it clicked. And so after that, the Lord, in his grace, just constantly reminded me of Romans 8, 1. There is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When those feelings of, of self-condemnation and, and guilt and shame would surface up, he would remind me there was always, it was that verse, Romans 8, 1, that would always come up. And I remember crying time and time again because that verse would come up and say, Lord, I needed that. I needed that today, and you knew it. And so uh, at that point, I had made a, a vow to myself to, uh, to not date for a while, um, even if it was this, this great girl. And about a year later, this great girl did come into my life, and uh, we, we became friends. We became really good friends. We had known each other a little while, um, but we be, uh, began to cultivate that relationship, and about a year later of not, not dating, I'm completely focusing on, on who the Lord was growing me to be and where he had me. Haley, my now wife, uh, and I started dating, and um, the Lord was gracious in that process. But it was all around that time, after that, that tough conversation, that the Lord began to cultivate a heart for missions. Um, I, I had already gone, uh, even up at that point, had gone to several mission trips, and then the Lord just graciously allowed me to go to several more um, and he cultivated in me just such a deep passion and deep desire for uh, ministry, specifically ministry uh, to other countries. I fell in love with other cultures, opened my eyes, expanded my world. I loved it. Um, but it was in 2012, through a series of, of things that, again, would take a whole lot of time, um, the Lord really burdened me for the United States. He said, look, I am going to use you. I am going to, uh, to use that desire you have for, uh, for travel and for other cultures, but um, I want you here. I want you here. 
And so at that point, I said, okay, well, Lord, that was what I had planned to do. I don't know what I'm doing now. And uh, so through a series of things, he, he led me to Louisiana College. I can, I'm proud to say I'm a wildcat, still am. Um, I, I didn't know what ministry looked like, so I ended up uh, getting a degree in social work. Maybe the helping profession was where I was supposed to be. But it was a senior year that my wife and I got married. And um, since then, uh, we have had two boys, and we have one on the way. Um, and I still don't know. I don't know what the Lord has for me in the future. I do know this. I know that my, my number one ministry is my beautiful wife my, and my, my soon-to-be three kids. Uh, the Lord has entrusted me with their hearts, and that is always going to be my priority, my God-given, scripturally-founded uh, priority. Um, but past that, I know that the Lord has ministry out there for me. I'm not sure what that is right now. Um, my, my, my grandfather, my hero, passed away uh, in November. And it was at that moment, he shook me and reminded me of my calling. Um, and it was at that point where I was tired of wasting time. And so I did a lot of praying, and um, one thing led to another, and this position opened up. And so I applied and had several conversations, and uh, the Lord has so clearly been in this process. And um, I don't know, you know, where the Lord's going to bring us eventually, but I do know that my, my, uh, my heart is to be in his will and to be proclaiming his gospel. I cannot imagine myself doing anything else. So thank you all so much for, for listening. I look forward to, to getting, many, uh, getting to know many of y'all. Thank you all. If uh, Kimberly would go ahead and come up and Jean Jones. Uh, Jean Jones, come on up here, Jean. Uh, we want to make a special presentation to Jean Jones. Uh, as most of you know, Jean, along with my mom, Kathy Holloway, has been leading uh, Upward now since we began Upward Basketball uh, seven years ago. And uh, Jean's been right there uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday, right alongside mom and in and, and all the times leading up to that. And, and this year, as the season was wrapping up, Gene uh, let us know that he was planning on retiring from Upward. And uh, uh, I don't know why he wants some extra time in his life, but uh, anyway, he's going to get that. But we wanted to say thank you because few people uh, spend as much time in Upward in that ministry as Mom and Gene do. Uh, just they, they put in about as many hours as a staff person, maybe more, during that season. And so we just wanted to say thank you so much for all you've done. And so we have a commemorative basketball for you that um, has some information on it. Let me just read it so everybody can see what it says. But it has the Upward logo, and then it says, Gene Jones, thank you for your years of leadership and service, 2012-2019, Upward Sports, First Baptist Church, Pineville. So hopefully you can put that on a shelf, look at it, and remember all that you've done for us. All right. You want to say anything? Congratulations. Right. <laughs> Thank you, church. Continue to stay standing as we continue in worship. And uh, thank you for those who lead in our church like Gene. That's what helps ministry continue to take place. God is good, amen. Amazing love that welcomes me. The kindness of mercy that bought with blood wholeheartedly my soul undeserved. 
You're so 
I'm sorry for my attire. My wife dressed me this morning. <laughs> no, I'm in, actually in the kitchen helping our famous master chef, Wes, preparing his po' boys. If y'all hadn't had one of his world famous Pineville po' boys, y'all in for a treat. We do have a few extras and we'll have tickets at the door. If y'all don't mind, pray with me, please. Our most Gracious God, thank you for allowing us the privilege of worship. Now as we turn to this time of giving back, may we remember that all gifts come from you. And from these gifts we bring our offerings, not just in money but also in our lives, freely offered in gratitude for all that you have done for us. Help us be generous givers, dear Lord, both of our money and our time so that we can be the difference. Help us to use these gifts for whatever purpose you may have already planned. We ask all this through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave all that he was for us. Amen. Depth of mercy cannot be, mercy still reserved for me. Can my God your wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? It's my only hope, you're my Depth of mercy, vast and free, so much deeper than the sea. But God of love, you heard my cry, and now into your open arms I fly. You're my only hope, you're my
thank you students and uh, thank you for leading us in worship. Don't you love it when they get to have a part in worship and, and just lead us? It's good to see the next generation doing that. Thank you guys so much. Are there people in your life that you like to hear pray? They're those people you, you look forward to when they're about to pray. It might be in a Sunday school class or in a worship service or in a time. You just, you just know that when they pray, they're going to pull you up close to God. There are those people. The first person who comes to my mind was Miss Esther Lowry, uh, one of our members at our church in Texas, in uh, Bellevue Baptist in Hearst, Texas, where Thomas and I served together. Miss Esther is the mom of Fred Lowry, who was for a long time at First Baptist Bossier. And Miss Esther, uh, whenever she was getting ready to pray, I would think, get ready. Because God was about to sit down in the middle of the church and say, yes, sweet friend, what do you need today? And we were going to be there right there. Miss Esther would pray. The passions of her heart would pour forth in power. And it seemed as if God was right there. And we were just along for the ride. We have prayer warriors like that in our church. I just can't mention your names for fear that I'd leave somebody out. But it's one of the blessings that we have here at our church. As we hear people pray and their passions are revealed. Because prayer reveals our heart. Our heart. Our passions come forth. Maybe uh, that passion is missions, or maybe that passion is for the Holy Spirit to move, or for provision for a particular ministry, or for something else. But whatever our passion, our prayer reveals our heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our text for today is John chapter 17, and John 17 is a prayer prayed by Jesus. And consequently, this is an important prayer. While it takes but a couple of minutes to read through, the prayer is packed with spiritual truth. And as a result, some people have written and preached prolifically in an attempt to mine the depths of everything that's in this prayer. For example, uh, Oliver Cromwell's chaplain preached 45 sermons on this one prayer. And then an Irish preacher uh, wrote uh, more than 500 pages on this one prayer. Now, I have to admit, I think 45 sermons or 500 pages on 26 verses may be a little bit overkill, and you're glad about that. But the fact remains that there is far more to this prayer than one sermon can get out. And so I met a challenge in my study. How can we capture the meat of this prayer in just one sermon. And I decided that we do that by capturing the heart of Jesus as it's revealed in this prayer. Uh, we call John 17 the high priestly prayer of Jesus or the holy of holies of sacred scripture. And those names come from the fact that in this passage we get about as close to the heart of Jesus as we possibly can. Because we're listening to God the Son talk to God the Father. And it's a prayer like no other that we've heard because uh, the one praying is like no other we have heard. We kneel down and we listen as the Son meets with the Father at the head of what would be the most important events in all of eternity. And even though we find Jesus praying many times in the Gospels, John 17 is the only extended prayer that we have of Jesus on record. 
We're not exactly sure where exactly Jesus prayed this prayer, but it would seem from John's context that it's the same place where Jesus has been instructing his disciples, somewhere uh, near outside the city walls, under the uh, temple area. And there, as he met with his disciples, we read in verse 1, Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed. We understand from that that Jesus prayed aloud. He wanted his disciples to hear his heart. He wanted them to know his passions. And so what is that heart of Jesus? Well, first we find out that Jesus wants to be glorified. He prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is about to finish the work that God had sent him to earth to accomplish. Soon he'll cry out on the cross those famous three words, it is finished. So now he prays that the Father will restore him to his eternal heavenly glory, which he had laid aside in heaven when he came to earth. And Jesus looks forward to returning home to heaven, picking up that glory. And so he expresses his heart, Father, glorify me. Now some people might have trouble with this prayer because Jesus prays for himself, glorify me. But we pray for ourselves, don't we? And R.A. Torrey wrote, a prayer for self is not by any means necessarily a selfish prayer. Oh, it can be and probably too often is. But it doesn't have to be. Especially when the prayer we pray is like this prayer for himself that Jesus prays, that the kingdom of God may advance through him. That's when your prayer for yourself is anything but a selfish prayer. Look how Jesus prayed in verse 1. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. It's all about the Father. The first petition of Jesus' prayer is hallowed be your name, just as he taught us to pray in the model prayer we often call the Lord's Prayer. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. And that word glory is used five times in this little bit of this prayer, but it refers to two different kinds of glory. There is the glory of the Father that he's mentioning there, so that I may glorify you, the glory that he will give to the Father. Then there's also the glory that the Son will pick up and put back on, that pre-incarnate glory that Jesus set aside in heaven when he came to earth, and then now he wants to put back on. Now... Jesus' hour has come. And as Jesus prepared to return to heaven, he knows that he can bring greater glory to God by making eternal life available to everyone. He says, I want to glorify me that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know that the cross of Jesus Christ would declare the glory of God by magnifying his grace and mercy like Jesus could never do in life. 
That cross extended the grace of God. That grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Those things like forgiveness and salvation. It extended to the world his mercy. Mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve like wrath and hell. And when anyone comes to know God through Jesus Christ, they receive his grace and his mercy. And Jesus' finished work extends that gift of salvation to everyone who believes. And that then brings glory to the Father as prodigal after prodigal after prodigal return home. The magnetic draw of the cross draws people to God in a way that Jesus' single life could have never done. And the cross still draws people to Christ. Now that his work is finished, Jesus longs to go home himself and to pick back up that glory. And you know something? We know that God fulfilled this request for Jesus. Because Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The prayer was answered. Jesus' heart is to be glorified and today he's at the right hand of God and we should seek to glorify him every day through our lives. Our lives should be lived for his glory and for his honor, that we continually can answer this prayer of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember that praise chorus that was from several years ago? I probably learned it in first grade. It says, in my life, Lord, be glorified. That should be our prayer every day of our lives. Jesus' heart is to be glorified, and he's now glorified at the right hand of of the Father in heaven, receiving the glory that we offer to him in worship, receiving the glory that is extended to him and the Father as people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to be glorified. Second, Jesus wants his disciples to be victorious. We've talked a lot in the last several weeks about the trials that the disciples would face. And so, therefore, Jesus prays for his apostles. And look at verse 6 and following. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. That is Judas. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them 
For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you have taken them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus wants his disciples to be victorious. Jesus knew these apostles had been given to him by the Father. Yes, Jesus had handpicked them, but it had only been after he spent an entire night in prayer with the Father. And Jesus had instructed these men in God's Word. He had revealed to them who he was, and they had believed. And now he prays for them as he prepares to leave because he knows things will be tough. Jesus never prayed that his disciples would find an escape from life. He prayed that they would find victory. And that victory would come in two ways as he prays here, through them being protected by the Father and being sanctified by the Father. As long as Jesus was on on earth, he protected the disciples. But he'll soon leave them. And so he turns them over to the heavenly Father for the protective care. And the Father will be the one to guard them from the evil one. And such protection would bring joy to the disciples. This joy won't come from absence of trials. The joy will come from victory through trials. And all of the disciples except John will be martyred. And John will go through severe trials, but their joy will be full. Their joy will come from the presence of God in the midst of these trials and the victories that will come as a result. The victory would also come not just from this victory in trials of being protected by God, but also being sanctified by God. The word sanctify means to be set apart to the service of God. The service of God that these disciples were set apart for was heralding the message of the gospel to the world. And so Jesus sets apart his disciples for this specific task of spreading the gospel. And so then as the Father sent the Son into the world on his mission of redemption, so now the Son will send his followers throughout the world to make that plan of redemption known. Jesus' heart was for his disciples to be victorious. He wanted them to be victorious through the trials that would come. He wanted them to be victorious in the calling that had been placed upon their lives. And so we know that God granted this request. We know God granted this request because we are here. Because those apostles told someone else who told someone else who told you and me. And all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who who are around the world are answers to this prayer as well. And aren't you grateful for answered prayer? That a prayer that was prayed 2,000 years ago began being answered every single day of those 2,000 years and is still being answered today, even right this moment. Jesus wants his disciples to be victorious. He wants to be glorified himself, but also Jesus wants his church to be unified. Jesus' prayer is like ripples in a water. It starts very close to the one praying, a prayer for Jesus himself. It ripples out then to his apostles, and then it continues to spread, touching every believer for all time. See, Jesus expected his apostles to be faithful. He expected that they would uh, reap a rich harvest, and so he prayed for every last believer down through the ages now, including you and me, 
My prayer, Jesus says, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me, them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The heart of Jesus is for his church to be unified. Now, this prayer has been interpreted in a lot of different ways down through the ages. Some have thought it was talking about churches cooperating on a local level. Others have used it to argue for national and world councils of churches. Others have said there should be a uniting of all the denominations into one great denomination worshiping the Lord. But Jesus is not praying for an ecumenical movement or for one gigantic denomination. To read this prayer in such a way would be to read into it our understanding and the things that we deal with today. And so what was Jesus talking about? Well, when we hear the word church, we think about buildings. We think about denominations. So when we hear unity of the church, we think of everyone coming together, the Baptists and the Catholics and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and every other stripe in between, but, but that's wrong. What's wrong with that is that first, church buildings didn't exist when Jesus prayed this prayer. They wouldn't exist for many years to come. Second, uh, Second, denominations didn't come along for even much longer than that. And so it can't have anything to do with buildings. It can't have anything to do with denominations. So what was Jesus talking about? Well, at its core, what is the church? It's the people, right? The church is the people. He's praying for those believers. We do that little thing when we're kids. You know, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up and see all the people. It really should be something like, here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open it up and there's the church. It doesn't rhyme, but it would be far more theologically accurate. Because this is the church, not this. You can have the church without this. And so Jesus is talking about the people. He was talking about the believers. He was talking about those whose name, who name his name and follow his way. Jesus wants every believer to be unified with every other believer. Differences may come in various ways, but there should be unity. Well, how is that? Well, Jesus' prayer is based in his relationship with the Father. He says, may they be one as we are one. Now, to be sure, the relationship between the Father and the Son was one of spiritual unity. We talk of them as being three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But yet they are three in one, three distinct personalities in one unity. And so the disciples were all very distinct individuals, very distinct individuals. Peter the fisherman was a far different person than Matthew the tax collector 
who was a far different person than Simon the Zealot. And still, through though very different individuals, these men were unified. You see, too many people think that unity is based on sameness. Every Christian being exactly alike. We carry the same translation of the Bible. We read the same books. We dress a certain way. We sing the same songs. Whatever that is. But that's not unity. That is uniformity. And when we place emphasis on externals, we miss the point. Especially since none of the externals we make such a big deal about are even in the Bible. Such external emphasis on uniformity engenders a judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with deadly force. It's anything but unifying. But the gospel hallows our individuality while bringing us into unity. Luke's two works, the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, show people of all kinds of backgrounds coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. In Acts, we read how the early church struggled to work out that issue of that very thing happening. Likewise, Paul in 1 Corinthians emphasizes individual giftedness, yet unity when he says there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. So what is to unite us if we aren't all the same? Well, the thing that's to unite us is our common faith and our common purpose. These men were to be united so that the world might come to know Jesus, and so are we. Verse 23 says, I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' heart was that his church be unified. It wasn't so that we would all dress alike or worship alike. It wasn't even so that there could be some great kumbaya worship service where everybody holds hands and, and, and cries together. That was not the vision of unity. Jesus' vision of a unified church was one of the people of God made up of Stuart and Rebecca and Sue and John and Margaret and Fred and Americans and Asians and Germans and Canadians and Brazilians and on and on and on. All of those people would shine forth the love of Christ all around the world as a dynamic force. And if all of those people from all those backgrounds could have unity and purpose, then the world would know that Jesus came from God. Unity someone has said, is an evangelistic necessity. And the lack of unity is the exact opposite. Because unity in the church builds belief in the world. It's a tragedy that too often we Christians are known by our divisions more than our unity. Within our own denominations, churches are known for splitting. The word Baptist business meeting causes people to chuckle because they know that so many have been bad. But even in the whole, we divide over things that are differences that are there, but we don't necessarily need to let them sever our ties. Uh, For instance, I'm concerned over the battles over Calvinism. I'm not reformed myself, but if the church of Jesus Christ hasn't figured out the holy tension between the free will of man and the election of God in the 500 years since John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, we're not going to figure it out today. We need to figure out how to come together and serve together. But we divide far more often on non-theological things than we do theological things. We divide over all kind of things. You know, 
You know, churches have been fighting over music for hundreds of years. I mean, even hymns that now kind of hold up as sacred, they were despised when they first came out because they weren't straight from the Bible like Psalms. I thought about it last Sunday as we sang, uh, uh, we're marching to Zion. Young Isaac Watts in the 1700s wrote, was one of those newfangled hymn writers, and he wrote that song, that verse, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God to counter the people at the church who sat silent because they not dare sing that ungodly hymn. He said, let them not sing. They never knew our God anyway. That's what that means. Wow. Uh, We find other reasons to divide. Dress, Bible translations, teachers, architecture, all kinds of stuff. We've got to stop finding things to divide us and start focusing on the thing that unites us, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's all over the place. Certainly, unity does not mean just anything goes, though. That's where the left wants to take us today. But that, too, is a misinterpretation of this passage because there seem to be only two things that should cause us to pull away from a fellow Christian or a group of Christians, and that is unrepentant sin and false teaching. Those two things we would step away from. And that's because those two things pull us away from the cause of Jesus Christ. The only way to come together in unity is to focus on Jesus and to allow him to work in us. The reason Christians often can't come together in unity is because we're focusing on ourselves. And that's on local levels. That's on denominational levels. That's cross-denominational levels. We must know the love of Jesus for each other and for the world Look at verse 26, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus promises to continue to make himself known to us and also will be increasing the Father's love in us. And as we share his love, he will fill us with even more to share so that we become a wonderful fountain of his blessings. Some of us will experience more of this in life than others. Why is that? Because some of us will clearly see the passion of Jesus' prayer and we'll draw near to him and we'll be able to be used by him more. So why not determine today to be an answer to Jesus' prayer? This part of the prayer is also still being answered. You realize that, right? It's being answered by the Father through you and through me and every Christian around the world. We must be unified, whether we're American or Brazilian or Canadian or whatever, not in external expressions, but in internal purpose. That must be our prayer. We must be one. The heart of Jesus is for him to be glorified for his disciples to be victorious, and for his church to be unified. Did you hear his heart today? Are you being part of the answer to his prayer? Are you bringing glory to Jesus through your life? Are you allowing the Father to give you victorious life? And are you seeking unity with Christian brothers and sisters? Hear the heart of Jesus today. Be an answer to his prayer and bring glory to God.
May we pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for the things you do in our lives. We're so grateful for your passion that we hear in your heart in this prayer. And so, Lord, help us to be a part of the answer every day. Every single one of us, each individual person, Lord, help us to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.